Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, turn with me in our Bibles today to our text, which comes from uh, the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 15 and verses 1 to 4. Revelation chapter 15 and verses 1 to 4. Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Please then hear with me the reading of God's inerrant Word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You. For Your righteous acts have been revealed. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Chapter 15, brothers and sisters, is the, is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. And with it, we are introduced now to the fifth cycle of visions in the book of Revelation, which starts in verse 1, where we read this, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Now remember what we've said throughout our study in the book of Revelation. What we have are parallel visions. And we see this, that are, how they are tied together at the start of the last series of visions themselves that began in chapter 12, verse 1. How did that begin? It began, and a great sign appeared in heaven. In verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. The same language here being used as we see in the first verse of chapter 15 is linking these visions together for us. Are demonstrating to us that, that these are visions speaking about the same things. So just as chapters 12 to 14 depict to us all that is going on throughout the church age until the return of Christ, so too then do these seven plagues that come from the seven angels. What further connects chapter 15 and 16, which is this fifth cycle of visions, with the other cycles and demonstrating that they overlap with one another, is what they affect. Right? We see that these are overlapping visions as we look at the different cycles of visions and we see what they affect. What do these bowls in this fifth cycle of visions affect? Well, we're, we'll be told in chapter 16 that the first bowl is poured out on the earth. That the second bowl is poured out upon the sea. That the third bowl is poured upon the, the rivers and the springs of water. And that the fourth bowl is poured onto the sun. Well, brothers and sisters, from chapter 8, what did we learn about the, the trumpet judgments? That the first trumpet blast affected the earth. 
that the second trumpet blast affected the sea, that the third trumpet blast affected the uh, rivers and the springs of water, and that the fourth trumpet blast affected what? The sun. So that we see how these are interlinked and overlapping visions that are occurring throughout the church age. So that what is being described to us today is not something that chronologically happens after the seal judgments are completed. It does not chronologically happen after then the trumpet blasts have been exhausted. Right? But rather what it describes is something that is occurring all at the same time in a, in a cyclical fashion. And we know this likewise because after the seventh seal judgment and after the seventh trumpet judgment, what happens? The end of the world. So that there is nothing left to be done after the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet or the seventh bowl. And so what John is doing here is he's continually demonstrating that these bold judgments run parallel with all the other judgments and likewise how he describes the bold judgments ending. Because as we will see, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments all end in the exact same manner. Again, linking and connecting them with one another. In chapter 8, verse 5, describing the end of the sealed judgments, this is what we read. Then the angel took the censer. He filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes with lightning, and an earthquake. Well, in chapter 11, verse 19, if you recall, at the seventh trumpet blast, what do we read? Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. What is it that we find at the end of the bold judgments? In chapter 16, verse 18. We will read this when we get there. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So we see how very similar the ending of every single one of them are. And it's not a coincidence that the final judgment scene is depicted as occurring at the seventh of each one of these. The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl. Why? Because in a book filled with figurative symbols and signs and numbers, and the number seven being used over 30 times in this book, right? the number seven means that it is Complete. Right? That's what that number symbolizes. Completeness. So yeah, the, the end of the world is depicted at the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, because it demonstrates to us that now has come complete and total judgment of the world. And if you don't believe this, then, then what you have to believe, ultimately, is that the world ends three different times in exactly the same manner. And if you don't want to believe that, then the only logical conclusion... Right, based upon the book of Revelation and really all of Scripture, is that these are parallel visions that are describing the same thing to us, but from different angles and from different perspectives. You know, I've said this before, I think when we started in the book of Revelation, it's, a, it's as if we are, you, you know, you're driving up upon Mount Rushmore and you see the front of it. Right? One of the visions describes it as if you are seeing it from the front. As you drive by it, one of the visions describes it as if you are seeing it from the side. As you drive past it, one of the visions is describing it as if you are seeing it from the back. 
Right? Different angles, different perspectives, but the same things that are occurring. And in fact, in verse 1 here, we are told what differentiates these bold judgments from the other judgments that we have seen that come before it. And it is this, it says, they are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, some of you might immediately think in your head, well, you've just said that they're not chronologically at the end. right? That, that it's not as if the seals are extinguished, the trumpets are extinguished, and now the, the bold judgments come. Why does it say that they are last? For with them the wrath of God is finished. Well, because, brothers and sisters, it means that they are the, the, the last of the judgments that God pours down upon man but it happens in a cyclical fashion. right? So that from the 1st century to the 21st century, man is experiencing the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and last of all of those judgments, he experiences the bold judgments. But they are all occurring at the same time, over and over and over again, in a cyclical manner. Right? Listen to what William Hendrickson says about this in his commentary on this passage. He says this, the, the question which now arises is what happens whenever in history the trumpets of judgments, the initial plagues, fail to result in penitence and conversion? Does God permit such impenitence, such hardness of heart to go unpunished until the final judgment day? He says this, that is the question that is answered in our present vision. So he says this, whenever in history the wicked fail to repent in answer to the initial and partial manifestation of God's anger in those judgments, the final effusion of God's wrath follows. It is final, though not complete, until the day of judgment. So what he's saying is this, that as He showers this earth with the trumpet judgments, and they are not heeded, what follows sinful man are the bold judgments. Right? But it is this cycle that is reoccurring throughout history. So that they are last because they come last to sinful man, but throughout the church age. They are also last in that they leave no more room then for repentance. As God has warned man with the trumpet judgments, Man has refused God's warnings, have not heeded them, and so has turned his back on God, and so God showers upon His bold judgments upon man. That is what, what uh, William Hendrickson calls the, the final effusion of His wrath. And this is in perfect harmony with the book of Revelation. Think about it. We said that the trumpet judgments affect what? The earth, the sea, the rivers, the sun? But how much of them do they affect? One-third. One-third of the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sun. They are a, a partial manifestation of God's anger upon man. What do the bold judgments affect? The whole of each. The whole of the earth. The whole of the sea. The whole of the river. And the whole of the sun. And so these, these bold judgments depict the final effusion of God's wrath 
against sinful man as they refuse to heed His warnings as they dig their feet into their sin and reject Almighty God. That's what, that's what these bold judgments are. That is how they are to be seen. And so verse 1 is then a, an introduction for us to the bold judgments. It's an introduction to us of the bold judgments but it's an introduction that doesn't pick back up until verse 5. It's an introduction that doesn't pick back up until verse 5 as those visions run from 15.5 to 16-21. to But what we need to see is that in fact verses 2, 3, and 4 take us back to the prior vision. Right? Verses 2, 3, and 4 take us back to the prior vision. The, the vision that ended in chapter 14 and verse 20. And now these three verses describe for us the absolute bliss that the saints will enjoy in glory after the final judgment. If you were to count up the, the visions in chapters 12, 13, and 14, what you will find is that there are only six visions there. So that in fact, it makes perfect sense that this is the seventh vision which now brings that series of visions to its end. These three verses thematically though also connect the old visions that we've been looking at with these new visions. And we see that in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses. And so this ending to the old vision draws us to the book of Exodus. And what we will see is that the new set of visions picks up that theme as the plagues that the world are going to experience will be modeled after the plagues in the book of Exodus. And so we see that John is really here using a, a literary device, connecting the old with the new. And this is something he's done already before. And so I don't want to go over, belabor why this is the case or why we are to understand it this way. Because we've already seen this done in chapter 8. If you remember that, turn to chapter 8 real quick. If you remember here in chapter 8, uh, the seventh seal comes to an end and the seventh trumpets pick back up in verse 6, right? But what did we say about this? In verse 1 of chapter 8, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour and a half. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to Him. But then all of a sudden what happens? And and another angel came, stood at the altar with a golden censer. And and we read about what happens with this angel with a golden censer, how how he throws it upon the earth and how the earth ends because of it. And then in verse 6, what happens? He he picks back up with verse 1 and verse 2, describing the seven angels who had the seven trumpets. And so the same thing, brothers and sisters, is occurring here. Right? The, the vision in chapter 14, verse 20 comes to an end. He introduces for us just very briefly in the first verse the new set of visions only to come back to the old set to conclude them, but connecting them with this Exodus theme as we move along into the new set of visions. Right? So this is a, a literary device that John uses. And so uh, we just need to see that this is really the conclusion of chapter 14, verse 20 and what occurs after the final judgment. 
And so it's these three verses that really then we need to see depict for us uh, the very same thing that was depicted in chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Right, this is really the, the, the same material and the same message that we looked at there. And so this is what we're going to focus our attention on today. And next week then we'll pick back up on the new set of visions. And so this morning we're only going to have two points based on these three verses and what it is that we're told the saints will be doing in glory. And so point number one is this. Point number one is the saints standing. The saints standing. Point number two then will be the saints singing. The saints singing. So the saints standing and the saints singing. Please then look with me down at uh, verse 2 briefly. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So here we see the, the saints standing. Right here John sees this vision that he says appears to be like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now we have to ask then, what, what is the sea? What is the sea? What is it symbolic of? And as we are consistent in our interpretation of these things throughout the book, we have said that the sea is symbolic for chaos. And it's symbolic for evil. And it's symbolic of rebellion. But that's not only true in Revelation, it's true within the entire Scriptures. We've seen this in chapter 12, verse 17, where it was Satan who stood by the sea. In chapter 13, verse 1, where he, he calls forth the, the first beast from beneath the waters of the sea. We've seen this in Daniel, chapter 7, with the four beasts who represent those four successive world kingdoms. Where did they come from? They came from the sea. And so this is what, what we said the sea symbolizes throughout the book of Revelation. Likewise, what is fire symbolic of? As he sees the sea of glass mingled with fire. We said fire is symbolic of judgment, didn't we? I mean, the, the Satan and the beast and the false prophet are going to be cast where? Into the lake of fire. Right? When Christ returns in that great heavenly vision in chapter 19, He's going to return, we're told, with eyes like a flame of fire right? to strike down the nations. But now the question is, well, if, if, if the sea means chaos and rebellion and fire means judgment, how can we see this now in glory? Right? Why does John see what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire? What does this vision depict for us? What does this reality show? Well, it shows this, that when the final judgment comes, that the chaotic waters from which evil arises out of, that they will be conquered and that they will be stilled. That's what that demonstrates. That sea of glass mingled with fire. That when the, that when the final judgment comes, that the chaotic waters from which evil arises, that they will be conquered and stilled by the Lord. That the waters of rebellion are calmed by God forever in His judgment of evil, depicted by being mingled with fire, displaying for us God's permanent conquest over evil and every enemy. In fact, this is the same picture depicted for us in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. 
If you remember there, what do we read as we're taken up into that heavenly picture? And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And so there it was meant to encourage the people of God in the midst of their struggles, what? That the throne rules over all and that God will subdue the world by His power. That is what then it symbolizes here for us in our text today. That He has now subdued the world by His power. Brothers and sisters, we've all probably stood on the rocks and see the, 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 the sea bashed against the rocks, haven't we? And when that happens, as you look down, it's chaotic and you can't see anything besides the, the surface of the water, right? But we've all probably stood at the rocks and, and looked down and seen what? Calm sea. A sea that is still, that is blue, that is clear. Like what? Like a sea of glass that has been calmed by the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, it's this peace and it's this tranquility that we are given a vision into in verse 2 after God subdues His every enemy. And now we are in the presence of our Lord forever. Right? That is what verse 2 demonstrates. That is that sea of glass that John sees mingled with fire. It is that peace, that tranquility as He has subdued our every enemies. But this is also why though John describes seeing the saints standing alongside our Lord, having conquered the beast and its image and the number which is its name. Right? It is the redeemed here who are who he sees standing beside the sea of glass. Why is it us? Why is it the saints? Why is it the redeemed, the 144,000 who stand beside the sea of glass? Well, because it is us who have come through the chaotic waters and now stand alongside the waters that have been stilled. Right? It is we who have fought the, the battle against Satan and against the beast and against uh, spiritual forces. And now, in Christ, with Christ, we have overcome them and we stand over them all. Right? That is what is being depicted for us here. Is now we are conquerors. And as conquerors, Jesus writes to the churches many things in those seven letters. And He he promises conquerors many things, doesn't He there? To the church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, what does He promise? In chapter 2, verse 11, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, he writes in verse 17 of chapter 2, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. To the church in Thyatira, he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To the church in Sardis in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, to the one who conquers, you will be clothed in white garments and I will confess your name before my Father. To the church in Philadelphia, he says in chapter 3, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And to the church in Laodicea, finally, he says in chapter 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered 
and sat down on my Father's throne. Do we see this theme of being an overconqueror and uh, an overcomer, excuse me, and a conqueror so prominent within the book of Revelation? Why is that? Because our Lord knew that we were going to have to fight the good fight. That we were going to be engaged in a battle. And that we would have to run the race to the very end, keeping the commandments of God. Right? Keeping our faith in Jesus Christ and a witness to Christ in this world. And so that that share of the heavenly inheritance would be ours. For as we do those things, right, as we maintain our faithful witness, as we persevere until the end, it demonstrates our sincerity of faith. It demonstrates that we belong to God and that He has laid claim over us, right, drawing us to Himself and sealing us by the Spirit who will keep us in Christ. Right, the Spirit who will not let anything derail us from glory. Will not let anything derail us from our destiny, which Christ won for us in His death and resurrection. I mean, think back to that picture in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. There we have at the beginning of chapter 5 the angel who comes out and who says, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And what happens there? It is Christ who comes and who takes the scroll and who opens it, demonstrating His worthiness to open that scroll. But in chapter 5, verse 6, what are we told? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Right? Christ Himself did what? He overcame His every enemy being faithful to the Father unto death. And now what did He do? He stood in glory. It was through His life, death, and resurrection He overcome them all and now He stands with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need to see in this picture of verse 2. That we too will stand alongside our Savior in glory. But only through a life of fighting. Only through a life of overcoming your enemies. It is not for those, glory is not for those who follow Christ for a short time or for follow Christ for a little time and then depart from Him. Right? Only those who overcome their enemies and persevere until the end have the promise of resurrection unto glory. And we who are Christ's, who have been given the guarantee of our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit, we can know then that we shall overcome and that we shall be with the Lord in glory. So that at the end of the day, it is not because of you that you will stand in glory, but rather you will stand in glory because of Christ. For it is Christ who sent the Spirit to indwell the believer so that you may be an overcomer. Right In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we read this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Brothers and sisters, it is the Spirit of Christ who will keep you from stumbling so that you will be presented blameless, but before the, the glory of God with great joy. Right? What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9? For God has not destined us for wrath, but rather to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And those Christ died to redeem, 
whom He brought through fiery trials and conformed us to the image of Christ, He will perfectly conform us to reflect that image as we stand alongside our Savior with harps in hand. But what does it mean to have a a harp in hand? We have to ask ourselves, what what does that symbolism mean to us? Well, what it indicates to us is our task as the royal priesthood of God. The traditional instrument in the Old Testament of the Levitical priesthood that they were commanded to play in the temple was the harp. The harp was that instrument. But now in heaven, let us see that it is the task of every saint, every saint who has been brought into the royal priesthood to worship God and to come into His presence with great joy and with great exuberance which the instruments of the Old Testament were representative of. You see, brothers and sisters, when man was created, we were created to be in perfect fellowship with our Lord and to worship Him in purity, but because of the fall, our fellowship with the Lord was marred and our purity was distorted. But in glory, what we see here in this picture is that we shall have perfect fellowship with God. And our worship We shall worship in perfect purity before the Lord, just as He had intended in creation. So that as paradise was lost with the first Adam, paradise will now be restored with the second Adam and with Christ. And a part of that worship includes what? It includes the singing of the saints before God and the Lamb. It is this that we read about in verses 3 and 4. Please look with me there. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying this, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This leads us to our second and to our final point, which is the saints' singing. Now, what is the song that we are told that the saints will sing in glory? We are told that they will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. But what I want us to see is that these are not two distinct songs. They are only one song. They are not two distinct songs. They are only one. We will not be singing an old song in glory. We will be singing a new song in glory. So to understand why both songs are referenced, we need to reflect upon what the old song was. Right? What was the, the song of Moses? Well, the song of Moses is recorded for us in Exodus 15, verses 1-18. to In fact, it is at the very end of chapter 14, in verse 31, that John here even pulls that phrase, the servant of God. We're told he sings the song of Moses, the servant of God. Well, the, the song of Moses is Exodus 15, 1-18. That phrase, the servant of God, is spoken of of Moses in Exodus 14:31. So we see he's, he's deriving both of these things from the book of Exodus. And it's there in verse 31 of chapter 14 that we read this, that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. 
so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Now we have to ask ourselves, what was the great power that they seen and declared in verse 31? Well, it was the Lord driving back the waters of the Red Sea, wasn't it? So that the Israelites were able to, to walk through the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And to their right and to their left was what? Walls of water. And as they walked through what occurred, the Egyptians followed behind them, didn't they? But as the Egyptians followed behind them, those walls of water fell on top of them so that the chariots and all of the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that followed behind them were destroyed. Right? Not one of them lived. And so starting up in Exodus 15, verse 1, what happens now? They, they sing a song of praise to God and praising Him for the deliverance that He has granted to them. In fact, they sang in Exodus 15, verse 11, Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out Your right hand. The earth swallowed them. What are the contents of the Song of the Lamb? What's the very first line of the song? Great and amazing are your deeds. Right? The Israelites sang a song of praise because of God's deliverance. So too, brothers and sisters, in the song of the Lamb, they're singing the same thing. It's a song of praise because of their deliverance. And just as the Israelites praised God for His majestic holiness in freeing them from their oppressors and destroying them, what do we see in our text? That two God's people in the song of the Lamb will sing of God's holiness as He freed them from our oppressors. This is why they say, just and true are your ways. It's a reference to the final judgment over those who persecuted God's people. So the song of Moses was a song of praise for God's deliverance. But it foreshadowed what? It foreshadowed, brothers and sisters, a greater deliverance to come, didn't it? And that greater deliverance to come was the deliverance of the church from all of our enemies when Christ returned. And so now in glory the saints sing praising the Lamb's victory as a typological fulfillment of the Lord's victory at the Red Sea. So that we can be said to be singing both the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb because the Song of the Lamb describes the, the, the ultimate victory which the Song of Moses prefigured. That's why we can be said to be singing the Song of Moses and yet be singing only one song. Because the Song of the Lamb describes the ultimate victory which the Song of Moses prefigured. The great and the final victory in which we are led into our holy abode. One in which we are told no unclean thing shall ever enter. That holy abode in which only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life shall ever enjoy. It was Psalm 111, which likewise is a psalm of praise for God's works that He has done for the Israelites in their escape from the Egyptians. And starting in verse 2, this is what we read in Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, 
and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see this as we read the Song of the Lamb. That He too will cause the saints in glory to remember His works as well. And they will be the reason that we come forth together and we shout praises to our Lord for great and amazing indeed are all the works of the Lord. For in His works, what shall we see? We will see the power of God in them, won't we? Look at the second line of the song. O Lord God, the Almighty. Do you see that we will sing of His omnipotence? This power, which is originally and essentially in the nature of God, is not distinct from God's essence. We need to understand how God's power is so far different from earthly rulers and kings. An earthly king has power to command. But he needs people to carry out his commands, doesn't he? To make them do it. An earthly king, though does not have power in his own person to conquer nations and kingdoms, does he? No, he needs his army to go out and to do it for him. But the power of all things that were, that are, that shall be originally and essentially belong in God. All power belongs to God. He will bring all nations to their knees. He, by His power, will bring all nations before His throne. By His power, He will say at the final judgment, Depart from Me. Go to you who have rejected My Son into the lake of fire. And He alone, brothers and sisters, has the power to execute those penalties without any need from His creation. He doesn't need our help. He alone can do it, for He alone is the true King of every nation. The saints likewise will sing of His righteousness and His holiness. We see this in line 3. Just and true are your ways. His holiness and His righteousness are seen or are manifested in His justice. Right? In His justice, but not only in His justice in punishing sin, but in His justice in redeeming God's elect. His justice is seen in both. He is just in punishing sin, for in the courtroom of God they have been declared guilty and condemned for their sin, not having the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. But He is also just and true in the fact that the elect who believe in Jesus receive His righteousness. And in doing so, they receive the reward of eternal life which He has promised to them. And here in the song, we see that He has delivered on that promise. right? Because for them, Christ came and died. And by His blood, they have the forgiveness of sin. So that we are not to look upon the elect and say, well, God was unjust. Why didn't He not? Why are they not being punished for their sin? For in fact, brothers and sisters, their sin is punished, but it's punished in the one who has taken their place. It is punished in Jesus Christ, so that the the sin of the elect is not overlooked, but it was dealt for, dealt with once and for all upon the cross, so that God is both the the just and the justifier. And it is these great and true acts that are the reason that God will be feared and that God will be glorified. We have this rhetorical question asked at the beginning of verse 4. 
Who will not fear, O Lord? Who will not fear, O Lord? This is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7, where we read this. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? And the answer to that rhetorical question is this, that all will recognize Him, that all will fear Him, and that all will worship His name as they bear witness to His true and righteous acts. In Jeremiah 10, what the context of that passage is, is they are contrasting the incomparability of God with the idols. What we will see, brothers and sisters, is that in heaven, right, we will sing the praises of God, contrasting His incomparability with that of the beast and with that of His image. And the idols of this earth. Right, right now, those who serve and worship the beast say what? Who is like the beast? Who can fight against Him? But see this, that when we are in glory, we shall sing the praises of our incomparable God. For He has fought against the beast. He has answered the call. And He has won. Showing that all true worship has always only belonged to Him. Right? He alone is pure holiness. He alone is eternal and infinite. He alone is a being that is distinguished from all other beings by His divine attributes, which He alone possesses. Idols of this earth are just like you and I. But none is like the Lord our God. And the effect of that holiness is that we come before our Lord and we worship Him. That we flock to our Lord in glory, praising Him with tongue and mouth and body and soul. So as we draw to a close then this morning, I want us to see that the triumph of the of Moses and the Red Sea account was but a picture of the triumph of the Lamb. And just as the Israelites sang, and they sang because of their safety and because of the security they had in the presence of the Lord, so too, brothers and sisters, shall we sing upon Mount Zion. Right? For there we shall be safe and we shall have eternal security in the Lord forever. Let us also then see in both of these songs the unity of both of the Testaments. The Old Testament and the New. See that they declare to us the same God. They declare to us the same salvation. And they declare to us the same Gospel. The Scriptures are one unified message. It's a tapestry so elegantly woven together that is now revealed to us and opened up to us in the book of Revelation. And now we see the excellence of God's written Word. We see how in the coming of Christ that He calmed the stormy seas when He was on that boat with His disciples. But He did so temporarily to demonstrate what? That by His life, death, and resurrection, that He will calm all the seas which are symbolic of evil. And He will do so eternally. And now we await the completion of our salvation where we will all together rejoice in that triumph singing together the song of the Lamb. Please let us bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for such an encouraging message about uh, what we shall be in glory. Uh, we thank You, Father, that You give us 
so many examples, even in the Old Testament, that, that teach us about the glories and the riches that Christ has brought with Himself. Uh, we ask, Lord, that You would help us this day to not forget the message, but reflect upon it. Uh, reflect upon uh, the power of God and the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and how we will stand beside Him at the, uh, in the sea in, in heavenly glory as we have conquered the, the beast in His image and all of our enemies in Jesus Christ. So, Father, cause us to think about these things, to reflect upon them, and may it cause us to, to praise and to worship Your name. And so, Father, we come before You this day asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.